Well, hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. We're coming from, well, 30 feet up in the air here in downtown Vancouver in my condo. I'm under federal government of Canada quarantine because I did a, the dastardly deed, and that was dare go into the United States of America last weekend. I went down for five days, and for some of you who may already know, I got married. Uh, a COVID wedding, it was. It's not even an as it were, it absolutely is. And um, I was lucky enough to uh, marry Cindy Schmidt, who is our senior producer here at RegWatch. And it is definitely a, a relationship, a marriage now, forged in the fires of COVID. And I'm very happy to have David Sweener join us today. David is an Ottawa lawyer. He's renowned uh, as a tobacco control expert and also a uh, harm reduction advocate globally. David, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Great to be back, Brent. And congratulations on the marriage thing. Thank you very much. I, it took a while for me to uh, find the one, and when I did, boy, did I pick a great one. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's good. So, David, why don't you fill our audience in uh, that don't know who you are a little bit about yourself and your expertise in this area? Sure. Well, on uh, issues of tobacco, I was actually the first lawyer in the world to work full time on policy measures to reduce cigarette smoking in order to address the uh, the health catastrophe that it causes. That goes back to the beginning of the 1980s. Um, I played a big role in setting a lot of the global precedents on policy measures to reduce cigarette smoking, um, but again, because of all the uh, the harm. And starting from, uh, from the, the 1980s, uh, I was involved in measures to try to deal with risk, uh, that you do things to try to, to get people to not engage in dangerous activities, and to the extent that they're going to, you try to reduce the risk as much as you can. And it became obvious that on issues of nicotine, the risk is from the smoke, it's not from the nicotine. So I, uh, right, right from the beginning, really, that this has been a part of something that I've tried to, uh, to interject into policy issues. Our, our show today is titled Seismic Switch. Sig sales rebound as vaping gets hammered. And so here's the lead. It should be of no surprise the result of never ending attacks in the war on vaping. There would be a collapse in public awareness and confidence in vaping as a legitimate life-saving alternative to smoking. After 18 months of ceaseless hammering by vaping opponents, a seismic shift is underway as people in droves are switching back to cigarettes from vaping. And that's according to Billy Gifford, the CEO of Marlboro, uh, the Marlboro maker Altria Group. Gifford points to trends that are significant enough to slow the years-long decline in U.S. cigarette sales. That's really important uh, for those out in our audience to get. It's the slowing of the years-long decline. In this episode of RegWatch, we're joined by David Sweener, and let's talk a little bit about what you had put in your uh, email to us, that this is a remarkable but predictable recovery in cigarette sales. And just before we do that, here is the actual, the big article that everyone had seen, over, it came out um, a couple of weeks back, a nice little reminder to sign up for our vaping coverage on RegWatch, on regulatorwatch.com. And so, David, give us the gist of what this article says, because it was pretty dramatic. A lot of people have been talking about it. Sure. Well, I mean, to, to put it into some sort of um, context, we know that the, the market for tobacco slash nicotine products is what Wall Street would call sticky. Uh, people don't leave that market very quickly, but they can move between products. And we had been seeing that happening. So last year, uh, early last year, we were having cigarette companies uh, 
uh, updating their forecasts, showing that they thought cigarette sales are going to be now falling even more rapidly than what they had previously predicted. They have said historically that the the secular rate of decline in the U.S. cigarette market is about one and a half percent per year. Uh, you can add to that through things like price elasticity, that cigarettes become less affordable because of things like price increases. Um, many of the anti-smoking measures that people like me have been involved in have you know, a rounding error effect. Uh, we hope long term they have an impact immediately. They, they tend not to influence things very much. And moving between categories has a big impact. So that cigarette sales started falling much more rapidly because of things like smokeless tobacco, uh, the moist snuff sorts of products uh, starting oh, 20 years ago or so. Uh, and that was reducing cigarette sales by an additional 1% or so per year. Uh, and then as vaping uh, started to become a, a significant issue, we saw cigarette sales falling more rapidly. So last year, we were seeing points where the Nielsen data on cigarette sales in the U.S. was showing a rate of decline that was accelerating to the point of an 8% year-over-year rate of decline. I mean, that's extraordinary. It, it was ramping up. And then it changed. And it changed in the third quarter of last year, where that rate of decline started to decline, it it was not as big in the fourth quarter. It was uh, uh, smaller again uh, earlier this year, where it was down to only a, a decline of about three and a half percent, rather than that seven or eight percent we were seeing a year earlier. And then in the second quarter of this year, the one that the companies have just reported on, cigarette sales, the, by their estimates, are probably down about two percent. Uh, so it's, it's going back to uh, much, uh, much slower rates of decline. And when you look at the death toll associated with cigarette smoking, that's really significant. And now we're talking a fairly dramatic uh, reduction in the forecast. Altria's forecast is for the entire cigarette industry in the United States. Yeah. And so in that, um, just to go back to it, actually, now that we are, we've got there, so Altria now expects U.S. cigarette unit sales to fall by 2 to 3.5% this year over the whole year, compared with yeah. its previous projection of 4 to 6%. We're talking about in the U.S., those percentages matter. That's, that's people in the hundreds of thousands, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you look at the death rate associated with cigarette smoking, and then as Altria says, uh, and, and said in the first quarter uh, results as well, one of the things that's going on is that we have older consumers, meaning the people who are most at risk, returning to cigarettes from vaping. And that coincides with all the scare stories about vaping and the uh, public opinion uh, information that's telling us an ever larger percentage of Americans, and it's now a, a significant majority, do not believe that cigarettes are any less hazardous than vaping. In some many cases, think cigarettes are less hazardous than vaping because of all the publicity they've been hearing about vaping, all the scare stories. Right. Uh, so what we're looking at is just a massive uh, onslaught, a tsunami of misinformation uh, that has scared people out of using lower-risk products back into using lethal cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can, you know, parse this issue the fact of the matter is is that there's millions of americans and in canada millions of canadians who now believe that vaping is deadly yeah uh and and, and deadlier than smoking cigarettes you may as well smoke cigarettes uh and you can see it you know if you talk to somebody who's smoking to to say have you tried vaping uh and you know it, it's right up there with you know have, have you um 
Have you tried cutting off an arm or a leg? I mean, they, it's just, you know, for, for many people, it's com- completely out of the realm of, of anything they'd consider doing, given what they've been hearing. Right. And the, uh, the junk science, um, the way it's promoted in an awful lot of media, uh, it's not surprising. And it goes back to the things I encountered early in my career in dealing with cigarette smoking and back when people didn't understand the, the magnitude of the risk of cigarette smoking. And the argument that was made really well in a book around 1970 by Robert Serino called Don't Blame the People, which is that people can only make as good a decision as the information available to them allows. And it's simply unfair, unethical to give them inadequate or insufficient information to make an informed decision and then hold them responsible for having made a bad one. So, you know, we're now saying, well, if they die from the smoking, it's their fault. They shouldn't have been smoking rather than saying if they're dying because of their cigarette smoking, it's the fault of the people who scared them out of using something that was less hazardous. The ability to use non-combustibles has been made available. And we see these rapid declines in cigarette smoking as people move to alternative products. Now, as somebody who's been working in this space for so long, I mean, how does it make you feel to know that public health, tobacco control, has engineered public opinion and also, you know, political response to be one where people are stopping vaping and they're going back to smoking. How does that make you feel? Well, I, I think it's, it's certainly a significant part of what we call the tobacco control community. Uh, it's, it's tough on me because if I go back about 20 years, I remember having the discussions with leading people in this field saying, what do we do about the prohibitionists? Like within our field, we've got people who are just prohibitionists. And they've helped us on other things like getting smoke-free policies and uh, uh, increasing taxes and getting ad bans because prohibitionists like all those things too. But what do we do as we're moving into this area of alternative products and the ability to really significantly reduce death rates by moving people to safer forms of nicotine? And the view was, well, you know, we're going to have to find ways to just jettison the prohibitionists if we're going to do a public health campaign here. Uh, and it, it looks like it's the prohibitionists who have won. I mean, they're, they're in strong positions within what is now the tobacco control community. And they really push this agenda. And they've got tremendous resources behind them because of, of people like Mike Bloomberg, who, who supports the prohibitionist agenda. Uh, we've seen this stuff before, whether we're talking about the efforts to prohibit alcohol or the war on drugs or many other things where, as... Um, Lisa McGurr says in her wonderful book, The War on Alcohol, is this continuing effort, it keeps coming up, of how do you use the power of the state to impose your moral views on the behavior of others? It never works. It's always a disaster, and they keep doing it. And, and that's what we're seeing now. So it's, it's very difficult to see it when we know that we could essentially eliminate cigarette smoking very quickly because... We have the technologies, we have the information, we have the science that we can move to alternative products that are massively less hazardous, and in many cases, far less addictive. And we have the solution looking at us. We can do it. We're seeing in other countries. You know, Iceland apparently now has its smoking rate down to somewhere around 1.5%, and not from prohibition, but by giving people alternatives. You know, Norway did amazing things in reducing cigarette smoking in a very short period of time, through the introduction of snus, you know, from neighboring Sweden. Uh, Sweden has very low rates of cigarette smoking because of snus. 
we're seeing in many markets around the world as heated tobacco products become available, people move to them. In Japan, for the last four years, we've had a 10, an average 10% reduction in cigarette uh, sales per year for four years. So sales are down by over 34%. This is a paper, uh, Mike Cummings um, is the lead author. I'm one of the co-authors. Looking at the data on sales out of Japan, and the black graph is showing what's happening to the total market for tobacco products in Japan, meaning it's been in a, a steady decline. It's continued in that decline. It may have accelerated somewhat. The red graph is what's happened to cigarettes. So until 2015, the whole market was cigarettes. But look at, look at that decline in cigarettes. It just takes off. It just it plummets because the lines at the bottom are the various heated tobacco products. And these are products that heat tobacco without burning it. Uh, things like Icos and, and Glow uh, Plume. Uh, they took off in the Japanese market and cigarette sales plummeted. And these are mere-shaped graphs. We see them over and over again. Substitution works. And in most countries, including Japan, it isn't that they've done amazing things to, you know, pull together risk-proportionate policy and, and tax policy and information campaigns to encourage this to, to happen as rapidly as possible. In many places, including Japan, it's just sort of happened on its own. It, it, it hasn't it hasn't had the level of encouragement that could really speed that decline in cigarette sales. Instead of doing this, you know, which is what we've done on so many other goods and services where we substitute something that's less hazardous for something that's more hazardous, what we've got are people who sort of are now ignoring the, the massively deadly product cigarettes and putting all their efforts into attacking the alternatives. And the result of that isn't that everybody says, well, then I will never use nicotine again. Um, they go back to smoking cigarettes. That's what we're saying. We get information. We get an onslaught of information. We have to find a way to dig through that and say what's real. And, and, and if we're looking at the science on vaping, it's been pretty clear for a very long time that the overwhelming evidence is that a Vaping is going to be massively less hazardous than cigarette smoking. Uh, and that's because we know so much about the science of cigarette smoking, not just how deadly it is, but why it's so deadly. What are the things about inhaling smoke into your lungs that kills people? Uh, and we know with vaping that we don't have that. But imagine something comes along and we can reduce those death rates by 95, 98, 99 percent almost immediately. With, with technology that already exists. And then we have people opposing that. And not just opposing it by saying, I don't like it, but opposing it by putting out false information, by trying to scare people, by confusing them. And it's just a reverse of, of what I experienced for so much of my career of the tobacco companies, the cigarette lobby, dealing in doubt. Their product was doubt. They wanted to confuse the public because that kept people smoking. Now we've got that happening on the other side. And it's the, uh, the, the, the Nietzsche line about choose your enemies carefully because you'll take on their uh, characteristics. That, you know, we, we need to get past that and so, hold people responsible for what they're saying. So let me get this straight then. Uh, it, the, the seismic switch has also happened in terms of fomenting doubt, where it used to yep. be... Uh, the tobacco industry was fomenting doubt. It's now public health and tobacco control. Those portions of public health and tobacco control and nonprofit 
advocacy groups that happen to be hell-bent on wanting to destroy vaping. They're now the peddlers of doubt. Yeah, I mean, I think if we look at what's happened with uh, quackery uh, in, in other areas, you know, we talk about how do you keep unscientific notions out of scientific medicine? Uh, how do we keep crazy ideas, you know, out of, out of uh, politics? And, and in this case, you know, it isn't like the barbarians are at the gate. It's like the barbarians have seized the city. You know, we, we've, we've got, you know, the, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, saying nonsense. I mean, they're saying things that simply aren't public health. They're not scientifically accurate. They're misleading people. And to the extent people believe them, they're causing death. Uh, because people with a very prohibitionist attitude, people who think somehow they're fighting big tobacco by protecting the cigarette business. I mean, and that is really something, you know, when, when you consider what sort of mental calisthenics do you have to go through in order to believe that you're fighting big tobacco by protecting their most profitable product, by saving them from litigation on, on, for selling an unreasonably hazardous product, by protecting them from innovation that would destroy their business. You know, somehow they think that that's a good idea. Uh, and the problem is, for many of these people, they will not discuss it. So you, you can't say, you know, let's sit down and, and, and talk about your views because, you know, maybe you're wrong. I mean, they just, you know, it, it's like you're dealing with somebody who's got, um, you know, a crazed uh, cultish view of, um, you know, some religion. Uh, they, they will not talk to you. They do not want to discuss this, but they're doing tremendous damage. And we're seeing it in the sales figures. They're protecting the cigarette business. Well, I, why would they be doing that? <laughs> well, I, I mean, one of the problems, they won't tell you why, uh, other than that they think that they're fighting uh, tobacco companies and, and they're protecting the co companies. Uh, I think it, there's ignorance. Uh, I think they, they've got outmoded views. I think some of them have a totally different agenda. So, and, and this is common in a lot of fields, that people who are fighting on an issue with an NGO aren't actually, you know, their, their primary concern isn't that issue. It's something else. So you get some people who are involved in saying they're fighting cigarette smoking, where really what they're doing is they're trying to fight capitalism or market economies or... Uh, they don't like anybody having a profit motive. Uh, and this is just something that they use. The same as you get some people who are, um, you know, just very left wing who decide they're going to be part of an environmental movement, not because they're interested in the environment, but because they think this is a really good way to attack capitalism. And they sidetrack the whole conversation and they actually make things worse on the issue that they're involved in. And when we get to this issue of, of vaping, that you've got people who are just you know, morally, strongly opposed to anybody using nicotine in any way, particularly if somebody's making money off it, like a vape shop. And my God, they're out to kill it. Uh, and that ends up creating a problem because they don't distinguish on the basis of risk because it's not about risk. You know, it's not about public health. It's about they just want to tell people how to run their lives. So, I mean, at this point, after being involved in this for so long, are you able to come to the conclusion or acknowledge at least that there's an entire, you know, multi-billion dollar industry out here to fight tobacco? And so there needs to be some limit, like level of structural smoking in place. If that structural smoking falls below a certain point, then the entire edifice of the tobacco control industry would, you know, fall, fall away. I mean, we're talking about 
you know, colleges in every single state and every, you know, region pumping out public health uh, personnel all the time. And then the, you know, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands that have been trained in public health. If you're trained in public health at a local college, a primary thing is going to be tobacco control because, you know, that's just a mission that's easy to yeah. send you out on. No, it, I think it's still a pretty minor issue for people who actually study public health. I think many of the people involved in tobacco control do not come from a public health background. They have no training in public health, which is why they do things that are completely at odds with the principles of public health. Hmm. Uh, there are people who call themselves public health while doing things that are, you know, adverse, uh, just simply not, you know, public health oriented. I mean, there's, there, are, there are things you do if you're doing public health, and part of that is risk reduction. You know, there are ethics of public health, you know, enunciated ethics, and that includes, you know, empowering people to make better decisions about their own health, telling the truth, you know, giving people accurate information. And so when people claim that they're public health, but they don't do those things, you know, that's just simply not true. You know, that, that may be, you know, like you or I saying we're actually six foot six and uh, mesomorphs and uh, have gold medals in rowing. I mean, it sounds great. It's just people can look at us and say, that's bullshit, Dave. So has public health applied those ethics, in your estimation, with COVID? Uh, no. I've, I've written about this with, um, uh, including in a blog that was uh, republished by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I think we've had people in public health agencies who were not prepared for this. They should have been. Uh, they're not adequately resourced to deal with it. They should have been. Uh, and their knee-jerk response was to go authoritarian. And that was things like ban people from going into parks. And so they were coming up with rules. But, you know, as, as you will see with things like when we go through airports back, you know, you, you just did. But back when there used to be people in airports. <laughs> and who are the people who are yelling at their kids, like making up rules? They're people who are nervous. They don't know what to do so that they can at least impose on their kids by coming up with some sort of rule. Like sit still, don't talk to your sister, don't touch her, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and, and it's because they, they didn't know what else to do. And I think that's what we got with COVID. Because when you say, yes, you've got rules, but what's the logical basis to this? Why would you forbid somebody from kicking a ball in a park with their kid? There's nobody else around. You know, uh, the alternative is that they have to be in a small apartment, maybe a multi-generational household, um, where they're more likely to spread COVID. Why are you telling them to stay home? Why are you giving them a fine if they, they I mean, that's what we had in Ottawa. The rule said you were not, uh, you can go through a park if you have to do it to go somewhere, but you're not allowed to linger. You're not allowed to play and you're not allowed to engage in any other activity. And if you did, you were subject to a multi-hundred dollar fine. That was nonsense. And, and yet we had public health agencies supporting that because that's stuff politicians came up with and the public health people thought they were bureaucrats rather than advocates and they did dumb stuff. And it's exactly what we're experiencing with vaping. That diminishes the, the trust people have in public health authorities. And you compare that to things like C. Everett Koop, the U.S. Surgeon General during the time of AIDS. He had very strong religious views. And yet he was able to say... It's in the interest of the public to give them information about how they can reduce their risk. I'm going to do it because lives are on the line. And people trusted him. And it's a building of trust. And you don't do that in COVID when you do things like in Toronto, they built a fence around huge high park because they didn't trust people to 
physically distanced that they went into the park. If you don't trust people with the information on the relative risk of vaping, what happens? And what we're saying is that the lack of trust in public health officials is leading to, to people disregarding good information. And there was great research out of the Wellcome Trust in the UK a year ago about the level of trust people had in government health information. And you know, I highly recommend it because what we can see is that the ability to deal with something like COVID is directly related to the trust people have in their government's health information. So places like South Korea, there's tremendous trust in the government. You know, whether warranted or not, there's tremendous trust in the government. Some of the government was saying, here's what we need to do to deal with COVID. People did it. In the United States, you know, what percentage of the public trusts information from the government, you know, a lot or even some health information from the government, a lot or even some. And you think, shouldn't that be like almost 100 percent? It's 59 percent. Like four out of 10 Americans do not trust health information from their own government, even some. I bet you and, if you broke that down between Republican, Democrat, you would see some light there too as well. Well, and I think on this issue, if we, we break it down looking at vapors. So if you're a vapor and you're actually informed, you know, you've been reading things about this, you've seen what it's done for you, you've talked to other people who, uh, who've been vaping and seen what it's done for them. And then you hear somebody from the Centers for Disease Control, like the, the major government public health body in the U.S., saying, we don't believe there's any evidence that vaping helps people quit smoking. You know, what do you, what do you say? I mean, that is just so absurd. People are, you know, living it every day. They see it in surveys. They see it in sales figures. You know, they, it's out there in Nielsen data. It's, it's there in prevalence information. I mean, it's all over. Public health requires trust because you don't have the coercive power that you might on something else, the, the way criminal law can. Look at the history on smokeless tobacco. Go to the CDC website, try to find any factually correct information on the relative risk of smokeless tobacco compared to cigarettes. And we've known it, we've known it for years, we've known it for decades. They won't tell people. The overall smokeless tobacco market is about 10% uh, of the, the overall tobacco market in the United States. Uh, it's close to $8 billion a year. Uh, those people are clearly not paying attention to what the government's saying, and they're right. The government's wrong. The, the CDC has been wrong. They, they have been actively misleading people about smokeless tobacco for decades. How do you get them to tell the truth, to, to develop credibility so that the public believes them, so that when we get things like epidemics, they're credible sources of information. If you look at this and say, I don't like vaping, well, what's the alternative? And uh, let's look at the totality of what's going on here. And if they're attacking vaping and the market is, as I was saying, sticky, you know, people who are using nicotine don't just stop using it the way if you said, hey, if you're wearing red socks, you better stop doing that. It causes your feet to rot. I mean, we can change our socks. We can change the you know, colors of our clothes. There's all sorts of things we can change real easily. The use of, of a psychoactive substance isn't like that. A public health rational approach is about saying, people are going to engage in various activities. How do you reduce the risk of that as much as you can? When we look at what's our leading cause of preventable death, it's cigarette smoking. So David How can we deal with that? Well, it's the smoke that's killing them. 
give them something without the smoke, we've largely solved this problem. And then you have people trying to oppose that. Well, does that cause people to just simply stop using nicotine? No, you know, as the Wall Street Journal reported from the Altria meeting, and as we see in the Nielsen data and uh, MSA data and various other sources, uh, people are moving back to cigarettes. And and that, again, you know, the good news, bad news part of this is that the vaping market continues to be very strong in places like the U.S. You know, it's not as strong as it used to be, but there's still millions of vapors because, you know, so that's the good news. See, people are saving their lives. The bad news is because they just don't believe anything the government and the anti-vaping people are saying anyway. We have enough countries, enough cities where we're seeing transformation. I mean, I think it's fascinating when you look at, say, Vilnius in Lithuania, where in the space of about two years, heated tobacco products have gained 30% of that market and vaping products have gained more of that market. I mean, that's dramatic. When we look at places like Athens or Prague or Warsaw or Moscow, where there's so many cities where we're seeing this transformation happen in real time. What we're lacking is the sort of research that was in our, our paper on Japan to point this out. You know, the way that we can with Iceland and Norway uh, and uh, uh, Sweden, and we could with uh, with Korea until the Korean government did what it could to try to protect the cigarette business by uh, 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 scaring people about the heated products. But we see this happening, and it's that same graph like uh, you just showed on, on Japan, that as alternatives come into the market, cigarette sales fall. You do it again and again and again, and people get that picture because it's real. It's, it's just like we saw early in my career when I was pushing the role of cigarette taxes as a way to do cigarette smoking. It was the same thing. If price went up, consumption went down. And people saw enough of those graphs. I mean, the anti-smoking community used to be opposed to cigarette taxes too, Brent. Um, and they, they ended up going way overboard on them. But eventually, you know, they, they figured it out because simple graphics. And one of the problems we have now is that on the uh, anti-nicotine side, you've got lots of misinformation. But who's there to promote the information about, yes, you can get rid of cigarettes? And what we've got is a classic bootleggers and Baptist situation here with legislation, with, with information, where the anti-nicotine people and the cigarette companies can agree on something, which is that they don't want people to use alternatives. Okay. And that's protecting the cigarette business. You know, it's keeping the anti-vapors happy. Uh, and we're ignoring the fact that it's causing just incredible tragedy. So let me uh, get us jumped over to an, some of the stuff that's coming out this week. And here we have it curated up on Regulator Watch. Teen vapors up to seven times more likely to get COVID-19 than non-ESEG users, says new Stanford study. Among teens and young adults who were tested, those who had used e-cigarettes were five to seven times more likely to be infected than non-users. What do you make of that? It's complete nonsense. Well, this is Stanford University. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's an awful lot. I mean, there, there's lots of prestigious universities. I mean, University of California, San Francisco is a prestigious university. There's a lot of garbage that comes out of there, too. I mean, I think we have a, a fundamental problem with peer review, that we have really bad science that's getting through peer review, and then it's hyped. It's hyped with news releases that go even beyond what the science said, and then it's hyped further by media uh, to the point that people lose their trust in science. And, and this is much broader than just dealing with, with issues of, of vaping. I mean, 
anybody who who actually understands science and looks at that study, and I know many people who you know commented on it, it's nonsense. It's absolute garbage. It should never have been published. Uh, and we see a lot of this happening. And this is one of the problems with, with publications. And, you know, we know, I mean, there's other people at, at Stanford who uh, have made their career out of understanding the, the junk science that's promoted, and that a very large percentage of all the research that's being done is garbage. I mean, it just, it, it isn't valid. It, it can't be replicated. Uh, and we need to do more to deal with that. Uh, John uh, Ioandis at uh, Stanford is one of the world's leading experts on that. Uh, so, yeah, we, we need to address it, but it's it's a problem because there there's a institutionalized bias here where people get money for doing research that can find a problem with a nicotine product because there's big money go going out in that. Regulators are looking for problems they can solve rather than a solution. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got media who now, because of things like Facebook and uh, uh, Google having grabbed so much of the uh, the advertising revenue, media's you know hasn't got the resources they used to have to look at things in detail, to analyze something, to do investigative reporting. Uh, they don't have the expertise on a lot of topics, and they're looking for hits. They're looking for people who get clickbait. So if you say here's something that's going to kill your kid, you get a lot of clicks. But that just adds to more misinformation. And I think, again, these are much bigger problems than just with vaping. How do we deal with some of these policy questions about getting people enough information that they can be informed, that they can be active participants in a democratic society? And, and if people don't have that information, if they're being misled, then you end up with something much closer to what we see in Russia. Because they didn't have you know, objective ways of discerning truth. They didn't have credible entities they could go to, to, to check something. And so bringing it back to, to issues like, like vaping, this is what happens when you start putting up misinformation. You know, some people are falling for it. Uh, we see more people going back to cigarette smoking. The idea that, you know, a little over a year ago, we were looking at a rate of decline in cigarette smoking in the U.S. of 8% year over year. It had been accelerating. You know, every quarter it was going higher. And now it's like at 2%, and by some estimates, it's even. That's a direct result of policy interventions. You know, as Altria readily admits, it's uh, the FDA's actions on flavors protected the cigarette business. The FDA's pre-market approval is going to protect the cigarette business. Uh, the, the All the scare stories about vaping is driving people back to smoking. That's protecting the cigarette business. And we have you know, Wall Street analysts who are talking about the health of the cigarette business. You know, it's a healthy business right now, meaning that it's making a lot of money and it's got sustainability. Well, think about that. Wow. You know, how can we talk about the healthy cigarette business? Who made it healthy? And what's it doing to the health of their consumers? We've got people who have some sort of ideological agenda that, you know, isn't founded on science. Uh, but... Again, it's very easy on this to, to get angry or get depressed, but the history of innovation is that this happens all the time. And, and not just on things like vaping, but you know, on refrigeration or on farm mechanization or like printing presses, uh, coffee. I mean, anything new is not only attacked, but viciously, viciously attacked. Uh, that's just standard. That's the stuff Glustin Juma wrote about in his book, Innovation and Its Enemies. Uh, 
but ultimately it wins. You know, if we look at people like uh, the uh, the book Big Bang Disruption by Downs and Nunes, saying that the nature of, of, of innovation is that nothing can slow it more than than regulation. No regulation can slow innovation more than health regulations. No health regulations can slow it as much as FDA regulations. But even FDA regulations can't stop it. But if we look at this from a global standpoint, when we look at what's happening in other countries, you can't stop innovation everywhere. You know, they, they haven't succeeded on doing that. It's happening. It's really hard to take an irrational standpoint in other countries and say, we're not going to let this happen because it's going to happen. You know, it gets across borders. You can't stop new products from getting in, even if you try, because we've got like billions of parcels being sent all over all the time. And right. as many of your listeners would know that those places who are trying to ban vaping, you know, good luck because you can order in nicotine you know, from overseas and, and get any quantity you want in a very short period of time for a very low price and you make your own product. Uh, you know, there's still going to be a market. Uh, you can't stop it. David, so how, how do you work with it? Right, right. And, it, and you know, uh, Dr. D uh, Dr. Derek Yock, when he was on the show from, you know, Foundation for a Smoke-Free World just about a month or so ago, he said exactly the same thing. You know, the trains left the station here. And when you take a look at it, I mean, the U.S. is just, you know, you know, clawing itself backwards. It's like, you know, there's like claw marks in the asphalt as, mm. as t you know, the tobacco controller, the anti-vaping uh, forces are dragging regulators and the entire industry, you know, backwards. Now, in Canada, what's your estimation? Um, you know, there obviously is some difference because it's legal here, but they're the, the same misinformation, the same kind of... Uh, you know, public health groups or body part orgs, as they're, you know, derived, as they're derisively called. But, um, you know, what's your thoughts in Canada? Because certainly, I mean, we've seen in Nova Scotia, that's just hell, you know, Quebec is hell, yep. and so forth. And now we have this patchwork. I mean, is Canada close to being, you know, going backwards too as well? Well, I, I'm, I'm very concerned to see that uh, a policy in Canada is more closely following the, um, the US than the UK. Uh, or uh, Western Europe. Uh, you know, Canada used to do a much better job of saying, uh, we'll act like we're mid-Atlantic. If the U.S. goes totally insane, we might look at uh, uh, precedents from Europe instead. Uh, there's obviously tremendous resources going into an abstinence-only standpoint. I don't think it's going to win. And again, you know, it would be nice if Health Canada actually gave out better information about relative risk. They were going to do that, if you recall. Uh, they were going to give statements that vape shops could could use to tell people about relative risk. You know, they've been they've been cowed by the uh, the anti-vaping lobby. Uh, apparently, they uh, they did some research and found that an awful lot of Canadians just don't believe these products are less hazardous. And some people have used that as a reason to well, therefore we shouldn't tell them because they won't believe us. That is now, a, <laughs> that is crazy. Now you think about that for a minute. And say, <laughs> you know, if uh, if people think that. Uh, jumping off a, a third floor balcony is safer than going down the stairs. We better not run a campaign telling them the stairs are safer because they might not believe us. I mean, that, that's just absolutely insane. Read the epidemic of teen vaping, which is obviously that's the anchor lie in my mind that, you know, everything is, is built from. And because the, the numbers just don't show that. And if in a 30 day use is not a right measure, we've been covering that measure for five years. It's not the right measure. And so where we're, but I wonder with COVID, how come we haven't seen 
these body part orgs, the, you know, the, the prohibitionists, um, the parents, you know, pave and save and all that. How come they haven't been out dragging their, their nicotine addicted kids into, you know, TV studios and in, in front of the camera or, or for print reporters during COVID documenting the damage that happens when a kid goes through nicotine withdrawal? If, if we look at the, um, the research that was done saying, here's how many young people are using vaping products. Um, I decided to, uh, to go to an authority on this. Uh, the same as, you know, if you're trying to understand something in the Bible, it's probably a good idea to directly ask God. Uh, <laughs> and if you're trying to understand something about nicotine, um, directly ask Carl Fagerstrom of the Fagerstrom Index, uh, the, probably the world's greatest expert on nicotine who happens to be a personal friend of mine. And, uh, and I asked uh, Dr. Fagerstrom, you know, where do you think these people would be on the Fagerstrom index. And this is where you look at various things that would measure addiction. Uh, like how soon do you have something when you wake up in the morning? How many times could, could you go without it for a couple of hours if you had to, you know, that sort of thing. And you, you add up the points. If you get high enough on the points, then, you know, you would say somebody's got a dependence. And his response is looking at this total thing. He'd be very surprised if any of them are above zero. Wow. Meaning, you know, they're, they're just not anywhere on that, that index. Uh, and that's why you're not having people going to withdrawal. They weren't addicted. Uh, and uh, but meanwhile, you know, their parents, their aunts and uncles, their teachers, their coaches, their, you know, they're they're dying from cigarette smoking.